Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we begin a new series in our journey towards Easter. Each Sunday we will study a particular symbol from the Old Testament that corresponds to a New Testament truth found fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning is found at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 as we uncover the foundations of who the Messiah will be and what the nature and consequences of redemption look like. Thank you for listening. I got a bit of a head cold, but we're going to make it. We're going to make it through this morning. So, uh, Did you guys catch the news this past week? There was a uh, British Airways flight that uh, went to the wrong destination. Anybody see that in the news? So it was meant to go to Germany, Dusseldorf in Germany, but instead they went to Edinburgh. They actually went to Scotland. And uh, the, the thing that really struck me as being amazing about this account is that there was no conspiracy involved in this. There was no malicious act. There was no um, intentional trying to uh, lead people into the wrong direction. The pilots thought that's what was right. The pilots thought that's actually what they should have been doing. I mean, all all the more frightening, I think, because, of of course, you and I can tell that if there was malicious activity, we'd say, well, that's where the wrongdoing was coming. But you got to go back and imagine exactly what happened. It was someone up in the tower, someone at the head office, looked at the wrong screen. They looked at the wrong picture on the screen. And you know those little three-letter uh, uh, identifiers for airports that we've got of all our airports? Well, they sent the wrong picture to the pilots. And the pilots, you know, they're, they're not going to deviate from what they're commanded to do. But there it is. We're headed to Scotland, I guess. Scary thing that nobody else recognized. They weren't flying to Germany. They were actually headed... North, but why should they know? They put their trust in the pilot. The pilot had the wrong information because the pilot was looking at the wrong picture. We're, we're starting a new series today. Um, you can see it on the front of your bulletins. It's called Portraits of Jesus. And it, it's one that's kind of a difficult topic. Uh, the, the topic is a study of typology. And you know what? There'll be pastors who will go their entire lives and not preach one single message off of typology. And I, I'm going to attempt to do a whole series on it. And the reason is because what I want us to do is begin to get the correct picture of Jesus. And we're going to get that from the Old Testament. We're going to see how everything that had been prophesied, everything that had been foretold about Jesus was fulfilled in his life. The reason why I want us to focus in on this is because uh, what we're going to do is prepare our hearts for Easter. That, that's, that is our Super Bowl, folks. That's, that's the greatest celebration the church has, is Resurrection Morning. That's why we worship on Sundays and not Saturdays on a, on a Sabbath rest day like Saturday. We worship on the first day of the week because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave. And as we prepare to see that with a new and a fresh light, I'm hoping that this, is, this series is going to give us some uh, some lead way into that to really fill out for us the proper picture of Jesus that we would know with a confidence that we are actually going to reach the correct destination and that we don't get it wrong. Pictures are important, you know. In fact, this is one reason why the government makes you put a picture on your license, right? Because pictures help you identify the right person. Otherwise, you might get the wrong person. Imagine if you were flying, uh, the whole church is going on a trip to uh, Los Angeles. I don't know why we're going to do this, but just pretend we are. So we're headed out to California, and uh, I say to you, um, Tom is going to pick you up from the airport. 
Now, if only pictures I give you were these, which Tom are you going to choose? Who, who, let, let me see a show of hands for number one. Who wants Tom number one? All right. Who wants Tom number two? Uh, the majority is going with two. All right. So, so the goal here is picking up in L.A. And we're actually going to go to uh, Hollywood. We're going to go see the studios. Um, we got some people with Tom number one. But as the picture gets clear, anybody changing yet? Which Tom are you going to go with? <clears throat> now, had you chose Tom number one, he's going to take you fishing is where he's going to take you. Right? Yeah. Tom number two is the one's going to take you to, to the studios. But I want you just to simply notice this very simple illustration that if you get the wrong Tom and it, both of their names are Tom, right? I mean, we're talking about the same guy. No, we're not talking about the same guy. There's two completely different destinations by choosing the wrong Tom. I want to give a couple of illustrations on this idea as I'm trying to introduce here this series on typology called Portraits of Jesus. When we want to confess the Jesus, the true Jesus, it's a little bit small up here. I'll read it to you if you have a hard time seeing. But as Christians, we believe Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That's who we believe he is. We believe he's to be worshipped. We believe he is the creator of all things. Everything that is seen, everything that is unseen. Everything in heaven, everything below on earth. Visible and invisible. This is the Jesus that we believe in. We believe that he's to be worshipped as God. And we believe that he rose bodily, physically resurrected from the grave. And that he ascended to the Father and now is glorified. That's the Jesus we believe in. But there's others who don't believe that about Jesus. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses have a different picture of Jesus. Uh, They believe that he was created as divine, but not as Jehovah God. They don't believe that Jesus is worthy of prayer or worship, and that belongs to God the Father alone. And they believe that he was resurrected as the archangel Michael in a non-human spiritual uh, resurrection. Uh, Mormons also have a different picture of Jesus. They believe he is a created being, That Jesus himself practiced polygamy. Uh, He had to earn his godhood and his salvation. That's what they believe about the man Jesus. And that he contended with his spirit brother Lucifer for which of the two of them was going to be the savior of the world. Sounds like a a different different Jesus in many ways. Um, Muslims have a different Jesus. They don't believe he's God at all. They do believe that he was born of a virgin. They believe he was a true prophet of God. But the Jesus of Nazareth that the Christians confess, he had a corrupted message. And so Muslims are going to hold to the message that comes from their prophet, Muhammad. Uh, they don't believe that Jesus ever died at all. The concept of Jesus dying on a cross for those who practice Islam is, is foolish. That's, he, he didn't ever die. He was assumed directly into heaven. So there is no resurrection as well for a, uh, for a Muslim. And uh, those who practice Judaism... Uh, They also believe that Jesus is not God. They believe he was a false prophet. There was no virgin birth. They got rid of him through crucifixion, and he never rose from the dead. So which is it? I mean, they're all called Jesus, but they're leading you to different destinations. One of the warnings that we get from Scripture and this comes directly from God, that you and I would be very careful as to how we depict God. In fact, it makes it right into the Ten Commandments. You, you guys, you know, there'd be a quiz this morning, quiz time. You ready? First one, thou shalt have no 
other gods. Number two, do not make any graven image. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord. And number four, remember the... Number five is a big one for those of us with kids, right? Honor your... Good. You guys are doing good. Give you an A for the day, right? Um, However, there is one branch of Christianity that really focuses its, its worship around images of God. Uh, they're called icons, and this is found really in the Catholic Church. The Catholic tradition has continued to make depictions of Jesus. I, I actually think this is a, makes me a little bit nervous. So I was looking this up this week. Uh, how did they get around this with the Ten Commandments? And interestingly enough, some of you might already know this, coming from a Catholic background. Um, I put the first five up here of the Ten Commandments. Protestant there on the, le- on the left and Catholic here on the right. Uh, can anybody identify a difference between them? I told you it was quiz time, right? You didn't know. You might get to get, get your binoculars out to read that too. I don't know how tiny that is for you. N- number one for Protestants, you shall have no other gods, right? Number one for Catholics, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no strange gods before me. That sounds about the same, right? Uh, and by the way, when it says Protestant up there, that's directly out of the Bible. So Exodus 20, you go take a look and you'll see word for word, right out of God's word, this is what the commandments say. Number two, thou shalt make no graven image, any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or the earth below. But what do the Catholics have? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, what number is that for us? That last number three. And then number four for us, remember the Sabbath day, is number three for them. Honor thy father and mother. Number five for us is number four. Did you see what happened here? What happened to number two? It's gone. It's straight up deleted out of the Ten Commandments in the Catholic faith. Any danger in that church? Do you think there could be perhaps a, a missed destination? That you and I might end up in a different place because we're following after a different set of commands? This is an important deal. And to really stress this point, I want to um, go back to a passage in Exodus. I, I'm not going to make you turn there, but you can if you'd like to. The, it's up here on the screen. It's very tiny. Exodus 32. If you want to turn there, just the first six verses of it. Here's what's going on in Exodus. You have the people of God led by Moses out of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine how amazing this is? You, you as being one of those following Moses, you see the waters part. And there they are, heaped up on either side with Pharaoh's army coming after you. And you make it through just by the, I was going to say, uh, what's, the, what's the three little pigs? That, uh, seat of your pants, hair, hair on your chinny chin chin, whatever it might be. You just make it through and then the waters collapse again. And here you are now in the wilderness, lost, but God comes to lead you by a pillar of fire. Now, uh, we don't have the best English translation for this. This pillar of smoke that was for them um, uh, evidence of God. And then by night, this almost like a nightlight for them, leading the way. It wasn't like a pillar that you see on Roman buildings. Folks, it was a tornado. That was the power of God that the Israelites witnessed their entire journey there through the wilderness. And then they reach Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And as he receives these Ten Commandments, he looks down as he makes his way back, descending from the mountain, and he sees the people. Everybody with me? on the, I set the stage now. Let's, let's pick up the story. 
When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them. Boy, I wish Aaron had said something else. (laughs) Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed to him and he made an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. They said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, to indulge in revelry. Now you guys know how this story goes, right? Is Moses pleased with this? No, he he knows this is exactly the opposite thing. That, that this is exactly what God had warned them against doing, that they're now clearly doing. And by the way, that's a lot of earrings. Anybody else with me on this? I mean, if you're going to make a whole golden calf, that is a lot of earrings, apparently, they were wearing. The one thing I, that really stands out to me in this, and, and we would miss this, which is why I want to bring it out to you, is that this line right here, he says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. This word Lord is the name of God. That word Lord right there is the covenant-keeping name Yahweh. God's name. Aaron thinks this, and this is what he's telling the people. He's telling them that this is what God looks like, I guess. Because we're going we're gonna to now have... And, and by the way, I'm going to give them a little bit of a, a, a break on this because that's the culture they grew up in. What was Egypt? Think, think with me what it would be like to grow up in Egypt. You had a God for everything, and right? And they were these visible gods. And so what did the people do? They went back to what they knew. Aaron is getting on board with this, though. He's now taking this, this calf, this livestock animal, this created animal, and he says, this is your God. This is, apparent, this is what God looks like. And here's the message I want to give you as we're talking about pictures, is that with the wrong picture of God, You and I will remake God in our own image. With the wrong picture of Jesus, you know know what you'll do? Every time, 10 out of 10 times, if you start with the wrong picture of Jesus, you will refashion him to look how you want him to look. You're going to take the Lion of Judah and you're just going to bring him right down. You're going to make him something that's a little bit less offensive to people. Because hear me now, the message of the gospel is offensive in our world. And this is what people have done, is they've taken the message and they've changed it. They've taken Jesus and they've twisted it a little bit to get a different picture, not the true picture. And with this different picture, you and I, we remake him. So this is our study that we're going to be through called typology. I want to give you a definition of it. All right. Typology is persons, institutions or events of the Old Testament, which are regarded as divinely established models or pre-representations of corresponding realities in New Testament salvation history. Now that was enough to put you to sleep right there, I'm certain. So here I want to give you maybe a shorter definition. It's intentional portraits of Jesus from the Old Testament. That's what this is. This, this study that we're going to walk through leading us into Easter, what we're going to attempt to do is look at intentional pictures, portraits of Jesus 
that come from the Old Testament. I want to offer you in the New Testament how this is understood. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes these words, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. Now let me ask you the question. What, old or New Testament, these prophets, which one is Peter talking about? Old or New? Old Testament. So Peter is saying, all the Old Testament prophets, look at what they're speaking about. Uh, the grace that's to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And so he's talking to the church now. The prophets weren't serving themselves. They're actually serving the New Testament church. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Jesus' words in John 5, he says, you study the scriptures. Uh, what, what scriptures is Jesus referring to there? The, the old or the new? Old Testament. Jesus says, you study the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus says, I'm, I'm to be found in the Old Testament. You won't find salvation there apart from me. When you read the Old Testament, you should find me there. Or this passage in Acts. This is Peter speaking to Cornelius. He says, all the prophets testify. What prophets is he talking about there? Old Testament. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. But here's the best one of all. Luke 24. This is my favorite one. This is called the road to Emmaus. You guys know this story? Jesus is resurrected. A couple of disciples there still think he's dead. A couple of disciples walking like a, what's the, what's the peanut cartoon with the one that's Linus? Is that Linus? Right. So this is what they're doing, right? They're walking like Linus, carrying their blanket. They're going to Emmaus. And Jesus is right there with them. Jesus shows up, but they don't recognize Jesus. They don't see him. And they ask him the question, as Jesus says, why are you guys so bummed out? This is like bringing me down. What's the matter with you guys? And um, they say, uh, have you not heard? Like, you must, you must be out of town or something because the Messiah that we have put our hope in, they've killed him. And Jesus' answer, it's one that I'll leave it to you to read. It's the verse right before this, but says something to the effect of like, are you guys so dumb? How is it? I, I bet he meant it in love. Jesus totally meant that in love. But how, how could you not have known that this is exactly what had been predicted to happen to the Messiah? He had to be crucified. He had to suffer. And then he says this verse. As he's walking with these disciples, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The Old Testament on every page speaks about Jesus. It gives us a picture. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some of these Images. We're going to walk through some of these stories so that we make sure we get the right picture. Because if you get the wrong picture, you might end up in a wrong location. I want to make sure that as we're preparing our hearts for Easter, we do this. So I've entitled this message, uh, Jesus in the Garden. And so really to begin, we're going to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. I want to invite you, to, if you have a Bible, please uh, pull it out. If you don't have one, we have some uh, on the sides of the pews and in the back of the pews there. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we're going to spend our time just reading through uh, verses 1 through 21, and I could totally preach like a hundred different messages from this 
bit of scripture. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much is packed in here. Uh, but what we're really going to do is just focus on two main verses. I'm going to read through it, and then just two, two of the verses are, are the ones that we're going to look at, and we'll be done for this morning. So Genesis 3, um, 1 through 21. Five. Page 5, Helen says. So that one, that was a good one. Okay. Thank you, Helen. I appreciate you. All right. Here we go. Verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock of all the wild animals. You crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return To the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. All right, that's where we're going to stop. For today, um, I, I even fast forwarded to chapter three, but you know, you could see Jesus all the way in chapter one. Jesus is right there. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians that Jesus is right there. Uh, in Colossians, he proves to us that Jesus 
is right there in chapter 1. But it's here in chapter 3 that I want us to really see if we can get a picture of what this Messiah is going to be like. Who is this one who's going to come as our rescuer? Who is this one to come as our Savior? So to begin with, recognizing the Messiah, three observations that I want to give you. The Savior from sin, number one, be the Messiah will be a man from the seed of the woman. So we see this in verse 15. So verse 15 is one that we're going to focus on. This is not a curse to the man or the woman. This is the curse to the snake. And so by, uh, by default, the curse to the snake is the curse upon Satan. It's the curse upon the evil one, our adversary. I want you to see again what God says. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring. And this word offspring in Hebrew is the word seed. So it's speaking specifically of the ones who will come after. Now, I, I got no doubt, for the rest of Eve's life, she hated snakes. Anybody with me on that? I'm, I'm willing to back. She really did despise snakes after this. But God here isn't talking about her lifetime. He's saying now that there will come one from you. Uh, we could see further that this is given the... Um, Pronoun he, you will see, as he says, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, speaking to the snake. This, this seed from the woman, he will crush your head. So we know it's going to be a man, and we know it's going to be coming from the seed of, of the woman. Uh, one other place, and I, I, again, we're focused on 15 here, but if you jump to verse 20, uh, 20 has where Adam names Eve for the second time. I don't know if you knew that. Did you know Eve got two names? This might be new information for you. I actually think this is one of the coolest truths through Scripture because what it does is it shows how God prepares us. Do you guys know the first job that Adam was given? He shows up first day on the job. All right, I'm here. What do you want me to do? And God says, all right, here's what, here's what the plan is for the day. I'm going to bring you the animals, and I want you to name them. How cool would that be? Antelope. That's a cool name, right? <laughs> Jackrabbit, another cool. I mean, just the coolest job there is, right? So he he's going to name them. Uh, I love to buy my daughter stuffed animals every time we're going to a place. If you you ask Emily, I have the hardest time not buying stuffed animals because that's just how soft hearted I am. I just love buying stuffed animals. But one of my favorite things to do is when we get a stuffed animal, I love to name them, and I don't name them cutesy names. I give them like tough names, like Frank and Ralph and George. Right? Those are the names of her. My favorite thing to do. That's Adam's job. They're in the garden. Adam's job is to name things. All right. Eve is her second name. If you go back to chapter 2, just back up just a couple of verses. In chapter 2, verse 23, you'll see her first name. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. Now, this is a pretty lame name. I'm not picking on women now, but I mean, it's not very creative here, all right? He's, he, he's given her a name, and I can imagine for the scope of whatever time they spent together, he kept having to refer to her as, hey, woman! <laughs> That's what it says. That's what he named her. Woman, come here for a minute. All right, I gotta show you this. Like that, that's what he named her. But something amazing happens after the curse. Because there's a promise given in chapter 3, now verse 15. Remember, there will come one from the woman. From this one that you've named woman. And this one who comes from you, 
He will crush the head of the enemy. And he will bring life. And so now if you look towards verse 20 again in chapter 3, Adam renames woman. He gives her a name that is a name of faith. It's the name of a promise. It says in verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve. Why? Because he believed what? She would become the mother of the living. She would be the one through whom life comes. This is the very first place where we see Adam take a step of faith. Because by naming the woman Eve, he is expressing faith in God's word that's found in verse 15. So this is, this is where we begin with. Whatever picture we're going to have of Jesus, whatever he is going to look like, he will be a man who comes from the seed of woman. That, that, that's number one. The second thing that we see is that the Messiah will suffer. So whoever this Messiah is going to be is going to suffer. This, by the way, is the greatest hindrance for the Jews. Messiah for the Jews is the conquering hero. He cannot suffer. Specifically, to be nailed to a tree for the Jewish people is to be cursed. Messiah can't be cursed. Hold on. I, I want to say time out. You, I think you've got the wrong picture. Back it all the way up to Genesis 3, because what do we see in verse 15? I want to show you again. It says, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There it is, folks. The, the suffering of the Messiah, it's right there. S somehow, this must be true. It's not going to be this conquering victory whereby he leaves unscathed. No, there is going to be a mortal wound from the snake. The serpent is going to strike his heel. Now, if you're out wandering in the middle of the uh, desert, and there's a rattler, and, uh, and he strikes you with the venom that a rattlesnake has. Can, can a rattlesnake kill a man? Yes or no? Yeah. Yes. yeah. But if he only strikes your heel, you'll be fine, right? No. No, it, it, it don't matter if it wasn't in your neck or in your chest or right near your heart or your head. He can strike you all the way in the heel and you will suffer and die from that. That's the same message that he's saying here in verse 15. The Messiah is going to suffer. Third thing that we see in this picture is that the Messiah will conquer. This is the picture of the Messiah. He will crush your head. Now, is there any coming back from that for a snake? No, he's done. So this is full-on, complete conquering. This is the picture that's offered to us. So if we're going to find out who Messiah is, if we are going to see, just like the New Testament has said, that the prophets of old and Jesus on the, on the road to these bummed out disciples to Emmaus is saying, I'm going to begin with Moses. And I'm going to show you how everything that was written, it points to me. I think Jesus would start here. He would look in Genesis 3 and be like, I, did you not see? You, you remember the stories when you were kids, right? Enmity between... Uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's going to come from the woman. It's going to be, a, it's going to be a, a hero who's going to come. He's going to get this mortal wound, but he is going to conquer. This is the picture that we have. I want to move to our second verse now that we're going to pay attention to. And this is verse 21. Verse 21 in chapter 3 says, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, what is, what's God replacing here? Do you remember what happened? They ate the fruit. They knew they had guilt. They never had guilt before. They had shame. They never had shame before. And both of them were like, you know, they're doing one of these, hiding because they're naked. And so they sew together what? Fig leaves. <laughs> yeah, fig leaves. Oh, my goodness. That must have been a tough day for them, right? You, 
Has anyone ever seen a fig leaf? How do you sew a fig leaf? I mean, I'm not one of the knitting ladies here. They could probably get the job done, but you got to believe I would have looked like a mess if I was Adam there. I mean, I'd just take a bunch of bushes and walk around like this probably because that's the picture of the garden. You got, you got the man and the woman trying to do it on their own. That's the picture. The man and the woman doing their hardest to try to cover up what they can never cover up. But verse 21 tells us something different and it speaks here to the consequence of sin because God shows up after he has delivered the consequence of sin, which is now the curse upon all of creation. He does something for them. He makes for them garments of skin. So firstly, I want you to see A consequence of sin is that shame and guilt, separation and death are the consequences. The devil lied, folks, straight up lied. You will not surely die. Time out. Define surely because I'm pretty sure we will die. They died that moment spiritually because they were separated from God. They knew something they'd never known before. Guilt and shame. They'd never known that before in their whole life. They died in that moment. And then they would die physically later on. But that's the consequence of sin. It's exactly what we see here. It's separation that I think is... uh, Well, death, by the way, is the ultimate separation. That's what death is. It's the undoing of humanity. Uh, God made Adam from the what? Do you remember what it was? From the dirt, right? In fact, the name Adam in um, Hebrew means dirt. (laughs) He was named dirt. I don't know if you know that's what Adam means. It means dirt. So uh, God makes Adam out of the dirt, and then he breathes life into his nostrils. And the text says he becomes a living being. And here's what a human looks like. A human is this combination of the physical, the, the material world, And the immaterial, the breath of God, combined together in one. But what does death do to us? It separates those apart. So now your spirit and your soul are no longer connected with the material part of you. And you're undone. But this word separation there, right in the middle, is exactly what you see Adam and Eve do. Because the minute they hear God coming, what do they do? Like the kids with their hand in a cookie jar when they hear the garage door open, right? They hide. They hide because they're ashamed. They hide because they're afraid. They hide because they know there's nothing they can do. They're undone. Consequence of sin number two is this. Sin must be covered. This is exactly what verse 21 teaches us. Sin must be covered. And there's a specific word for that in Hebrew. It's the word atonement. Now, I don't have time, but maybe if you come to Bible study on Wednesday, we can talk about the sacrificial system. Because what was going on there is that the blood of a lamb or a bull or a goat was shed to be sprinkled over the mercy seat. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. And it would cover, it would cover over your sin such that you won't see it anymore. Here's the picture. If I'm uh, at home... And I'm opening up a jar of paint for uh, this one wall. But when I open it up, it splatters all over this wall. And now I got the wrong color all over this wall. It's ruined, right? But what do I do? I take the right color and I can cover over it. And then that stain that was there, that mistake that was there, do I see it anymore? How many coats is it going to take, Mark? Just one. Good. One coat. Well, if you were doing it, it would take one coat. If I was doing it, it would take three or four. But yeah, that's the idea, is that it's covered. The sin is covered, and that's what atonement means. 
This is what God does in 21. He comes to Adam and Eve, and he doesn't just let them continue. Well, good luck. We're kicked out of the garden now. He actually says, we need to take care of this sin problem before you, for you. Because sin has to be atoned for. It has to be covered. And that's the picture that we have where God comes and he makes for them garments of skin. Number three is that the, uh, the covering comes from another who is innocent. And the word for this is substitution. Uh, notice that God does not take their skin. He doesn't do a skin graft on them. It doesn't, doesn't change their anatomy. He has to take from another's life. Um, I, I'm kind of tired of commentators. By the way, people who write commentaries, they don't want to take a stand on this because well, it doesn't say that he killed another animal. I want to say it's completely implicit in the text. That's exactly what God did. When he made garments of skin, it wasn't that he abracadabra made new skin. Remember, God's work in creation was finished on day six. And so he's in rest mode right now. So he takes one of these animals that he's already created. Can you imagine that moment? Animals aren't dying. They were made perfect. Adam and Sarah said, no, I, I named that one already. And God says, hold on a minute. This has to be done. Because in order to cover your sin, there has to be a substitute. There has to be another who has not sinned that will cover over your sin. That's what this means. The covering has to come from another who is innocent. So again, this is helping us to see a picture of who the Messiah is going to be. Number four, an acceptable covering involves shedding blood. This would become, and for us throughout the Old and New Testament, the primary understanding of how sin is atoned for. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no atonement for sin. Now, in the, writer, uh, in the book of Hebrews, the writer helps us see that the blood of bulls and lambs and, and goats, it don't last that long. It, it, it needs to actually have a different kind of blood, a lasting blood, which was the blood of Jesus. But atonement as a substitution, if it's going to be proper, it involves the shedding of blood. So this, again, is going to help us see who is this Messiah going to be? And lastly, God does all the work. God takes their attempt and he's like, yeah, I'm not. Go over there. Take off those bushes that you tried to sew together. Let me give you something proper. God doesn't say, no, now you need to get it done yourself and come over here and kill this animal that you named. God does it all. Look with me again in verse 21. This is what it says. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothe them. There's a word for this. It's the name of our church. What is it? It's grace. This is God doing all of the work, and we left to do none of it. Again, what is the picture of the Messiah going to look like? And this helps us to see it. I want to offer you three conclusions. Firstly is this. Sin has consequences of judgment. Uh, when Paul wants to encourage Timothy to preach the word, he does so. This is the end of 2 Timothy. It's in chapter 3. He says, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. And then he continues, I give you this charge, preach the word. But that's Jesus. The Jesus that we look to is the, is the one who will judge the living and the dead. There is judgment to be paid. In fact, if you, if you wouldn't mind, turn, um, turn to Romans 2. 
I don't have this on the screen, and so you, you just turn there with me real quick. Romans 2 is going to speak to this idea of what's happening in our lives without Jesus. If you're following the wrong picture, there's a warning for you in Romans 2. Page 1748 in the Pew Bibles. In Romans 2, verse 5, listen to what Paul says. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself. For what? For the day of God's wrath. When his righteous, what? Judgment will be revealed. Here it is, folks. I I can't get around. Sin has consequences of judgment. Adam and Eve didn't get to be like, hey, this apple tastes good, and let's just carry on with what we're doing. Judgment came. The, The bill came due for them. That's what happens with sin. Whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, if you have an unrepentant heart towards God, What you are doing right now in your life is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. When I was in college, I worked my uh, my last year. I was waiting for my wife to, to, my wife, she was was my girlfriend at the time. But I was waiting for her to finish her her last year. And so I had to get a job uh, to show her that I'm worth marrying, right? Because that's what you do. And so uh, they were hiring uh, only as the night manager. I'm, I was a morning bird. I loved to get up in the mornings. I worked for four years as the breakfast cook. Get up at five o'clock every day. Loved it. But the only position they had open was for the night manager, which stayed up, up till 1 a.m. Completely messed me up to this day. Haven't recovered. <laughs> I'm off topic here. Let me get back. Okay, so as the manager here for the, the snack shop that we have at college, right? It's, it's a, I was a short order cook, right? So whatever came in, burger up on five, right? And you're... You're working on the griddle, but at the end of the day, you had to clean the griddle, right? You had to take all that grease and all that grime, and you had to scrape it all down, and there was a little trough. But let me tell you, folks, it was the hardest thing in the world to get that grease out. Like, to really get it clean, it was, the hard, it was so small. It was so tiny. We didn't have a tool that could do a good job. But what I found is, over on this one side, there was this little gap between the metal and the trough. And if I just pushed the grease over there, it all disappeared, It all just went away. I didn't know where it was going. (laughs) Until we got to the end of the year for spring cleaning time. And then we would take the griddle and we'd roll it out. And it was an ocean of grease. Now who do you suppose got to clean that up? Sin has consequences. Judgment day will, whether you know it or not, judgment day will come. And you and I might think right now we're getting away with it. There ain't nothing wrong. I don't know where it's going, but I don't got to worry about it. You're storing up wrath. That's all you're doing. You're fooling yourself thinking that you're, you're taken care of. This is the truth that we get from these passages. Sin has a consequence of judgment. Number two, Uh, You cannot be right with God unless you have a sufficient, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for your sins. Uh, I want to confess to you that Genesis 3, it's actually not teaching substitutionary atonement. Not, Not in its defined sense. You and I, we need to look to other passages to see that laid forth in all of its glory. But you know what it is doing? It's giving us a picture of it. 
Substitutionary atonement is pictured already in Genesis chapter 3. And you cannot be right with God unless you've got one of these. Uh, when my wife was at the Curcio weekend, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna take the kids bowling. That was what we were gonna do, because, because that would help me parent them a little bit better. And uh, they have pizza there, and I didn't even have to cook it, so that's why we went there. Uh, but I made this deal with them because remember, Emily is just the best at making sure the house is clean. Well, I was gonna bribe the kids. This is what a, this is what a good dad does. He bribes his kids. If you clean your rooms, we will go bowling. That sounds good, right? That's two for one for me. That's perfect, right? But my, my four-year-old, she just, she can't do it. She says, I can't clean, I can't do it. And if you were to go look at her room, you'd be like, you for sure can't do this. There's a tor- tornado in here. Um, it, was, it was hideous. It was awful. And so as much as she could say that she couldn't do it, she actually had to find someone else to do it for her. And for her, that was, that was her brother, actually. Micah, knowing that he wanted to go, he wanted to enjoy this promise that was given. He went with trying to get her to help, which she couldn't do, and cleaned the room for her. Micah served. He sacrificed his time. He, he did what she couldn't do as a substitute. And, and he cleaned up, and in a sense, covering over the mess that was there so that he could be together with her and with the Father. Is that not a picture of Jesus? Jesus, our our brother, human as we are human, yet fully God. He came and he cleaned up the mess that you were like, I I can't do it. I want to go to the promise. I want to go where the Father has promised us to go, but I can't do this. That's what we say, but Jesus does it for us. And you cannot be right with God. This is exactly what happened in Genesis 3. God says we've got to cover over what's happened here. I'm going to provide for you. Garments of skin now so that you can approach me and that you can continue waiting for my son and the ultimate fix for this. Lastly, Jesus can be your savior. Jesus not can be someone else's savior, not the savior, my savior. You say that with me? Jesus can be my savior. I want to show you these verses. John 1, 29. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which also, by the way, is for us our uh, lectionary reading. So if you want to do your homework here in our church, you pay attention to what it says back here. Awesome, awesome passage. Probably my, it's in my top five favorite verses in the New Testament. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Hebrews 9, he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having made or thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus can be your savior. And so this is what I want to leave you with this morning. One simple question. Do you have the right picture of Jesus? That's why we're studying typology. That's what we're going to prepare for as we get to Easter. But I want you to ask yourself the question, do you have the right picture of Jesus? Because you know what the wrong one will do? The wrong picture of Jesus, in the same way that those pilots didn't know they were going to the wrong place, they had the wrong picture. But because of that, they ended up in the complete opposite direction from where they wanted to go.